This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Inger Levy, Associate Professor of Japanese and Comparative Literature at Stanford University. Dr. Levy is the author of Sirens of the Western Shore, the Western-esque femme fatale, translation and vernacular style in modern Japanese literature, published by Columbia University Press in 2006 as well as editor of Translation in Modern Japan, published by Rutledge in 2009. Dr. Levy, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. Much of your research has looked at translation, and we often think about the Meiji period as this moment of transformation in Japan, modernization, westernization, of course. What is the role of translation in this Japanese transformation during the Meiji period? Well, that's a great question. Actually, translation, I think, is the, the one of the most important drivers of linguistic change in modern Japan. And, and we can actually trace it back to, you know, there's a, there's a history behind that that goes back really a millennia, and it is fundamentally a part of the history of, of Japanese writing. And that history has to do with the techniques that Japanese people developed to read texts that were written in Chinese characters. The technical term is, is kanbun kundoku. And to describe it verbally without any visuals is a little bit difficult, but to give people an idea of what that is, if you imagine a string of, of Chinese characters on a page or handwritten out or what have you, a Chinese person would read those in Chinese, right? Chinese and Japanese are very, very different languages. And that was the form in which um, writing entered Japan. Prior to the introduction of Chinese characters, Japanese was an illiterate culture. So Japanese people saw this technology. They spent a tremendous amount of energy learning how to uh, make use of it. Uh, and they developed these techniques for reading Chinese characters in a kind of what I think of as a hybrid language that partly reconstitutes the Chinese words in a form of grammatically and syntactically Japanese that's familiar to people in Japan. And so that, that was a practice that was you know had a, a millennia of history by the time that the Meiji era opens up. And it was a practice that also didn't always produce a separate text. So people would look at a Chinese text, they could look at a Chinese text and read it mentally. And I consider that to be a form of, of translation, really. So there's this longstanding practice. So in the Meiji period, when you have this incredible influx of new terms and this very strong desire to understand uh, what's coming in from the West, the culture that's coming in from the West, all these new things, people quickly um, figured out how to make use of this longstanding techniques and strategies for getting to know another culture by learning the language and, and then by translating it, making it available in forms of Japanese that would be more familiar and easier to use for Japanese people. So there's this very long history. And, you know, the when we look at Translation specifically in the Meiji period, we discover, of course, that a lot of the terms that we take for granted today as very kind of fundamental to how we think about all sorts of things from categories of knowledge to even emotions, right? So the term love, for example, uh, these were words that were translated into Japanese or the Japanese words were created to import Western concepts during the Meiji period. So that's one way in which translation is really important to all sorts of things that happened in the Meiji era. And I got interested in this really not from, I, I didn't start out looking at the, the Meiji period in translation. I started out um, much later in the early 1920s um, with, with a novel by Tanizaki Junichiro, a very famous novel. It's been translated to English as Naomi. The Japanese title is, is Chijin no Ai. 
And that's about, uh, I'm going to change topics really um, rather radically here to talk about uh, gender. That's a, a novel that tells a story of a man who falls in love with a young woman who by the end of the novel, her name is Naomi, which he notes from the very beginning is like a Western name, which excites him. And he takes her under his wing. And by the end of the novel, she's transformed herself into a woman who is almost unrecognizable to him. She looks so Western. I thought, wow, that's a really interesting story. Why, you know, this is, seems to be some kind of story about a form of exoticism, but that one that's unfamiliar from coming from the Western perspective into which we typically think of exoticism as something that travels abroad and takes something that's actually foreign as its object, whereas this was taking a kind of hybrid figure as the object of adoration and fascination. So in the process of thinking about this question, is, is, is it possible to think about an exoticism that stays at home? I traced, I tried to trace that figure back. Were there other examples in modern Japanese literature of, of female characters of this kind? And lo and behold, I found myself in the Meiji period uh, in looking at the first, uh, what's considered to be the first modern Japanese novel uh, in Meiji. Um, and the more I looked at that novel and tried to figure out what was happening with this character and why we had this full-fledged lineage of such uh, female characters in modern Japanese fiction, I discovered that that figure was deeply tied to concepts of language and that in turn, those concepts of language were deeply tied to the process of translation. And so when we think of the things that are being translated, you know, you could think of political treatises that are coming into Japan, technical manuals, and you say these things that are impacting Japan in these practical or more more physical ways. Mm -hmm. How is translation also impacting Japanese language and Japanese literature? That's, yeah, that's another great question. And I, something that I'm really interested in, in talking about. So one of the things that makes us go back to the Meiji period as, as literary scholars is to think about this fundamental change in the written language to what's known technically as Genbun Ichi style. Genbun Ichi, there's four characters in that phrase. Genbun means spoken language and written language, and Ichi means to unify. The easy way to translate that into English is just to talk about vernacular writing. There was a movement in the Meiji period as part of all of these other reform movements to build the infrastructure for a modern nation state to bring the written language into a form that was closer to what people spoke every day so that the idea was to make it more accessible to people so that it was easier to disseminate information to educate a modern citizenry. And translation actually played a, a, an important role in, in that process as I came to discover in, in more ways than one. First of all, the entire idea of vernacular writing and reforming the language, the written language in this way, came from exposure to modern Western vernacular writing. And so that's the one way in which I, you know, a broad idea of translation comes into play. But another thing is, you know, when people think about the development of vernacular writing in the Japanese context, there's the very strong expository discourse that treats language as fundamentally instrumental. And that's where this whole concept, I mean, it's easy to understand we think about language as, as instrumental, why people would be clamoring for simplifying the written language of Japan at this time so that it was be the idea is it would be easier to educate people, be easier to produce texts that more people could read. Because at that time, the written language was quite distant actually from 
what people were speaking every day. That's a fact of, of a thousand years of Japanese literary history that have to do with, again, this longstanding history of, of for example, reading Chinese text in this kanbun kundoku, Japanese kind of style, uh, and also, you know, independent strain of, a, a separate strain of, of Japanese writing in classical Japanese that had verb endings and all kinds of words that, that were very poetic, but that weren't spoken every day. So there's this very strong assumption that language is instrumental, embedded in that whole discourse of language reform. But if we look at the, actually what people did, and in literature, the strength that we get from looking at literature as opposed to looking at that expository discourse that I find really interesting is that in order for written language to be accepted by people who have a 1,000-year history of literary texts, the language that is written in has to be accepted as something that's precious. And the spoken language was not considered to be precious. So it's easy to talk about, it's easy to say, well, you know, we need to bring the spoken language and written language closer together, but it's very difficult to do that in a way that people will embrace. So this is actually where translation also, again, came into play, but in, in a way that's kind of surprising. Some of the texts that particularly were written by authors of fiction, literary figures, were done in such a way as to bring this idea of vernacular writing not only closer to, that writing was not supposed to only become closer to spoken Japanese, but also to bring it closer to their understanding of written Western literary texts. So there's this kind of hidden exotic flavor to a lot of these foundational texts that then developed the, the modern vernacular style of writing. The, the first modern Japanese novel that I, er, I mentioned before, Ukigumo, was written by a man named Futabate Shime. It was written over a three-year period from 1887 to 89. And while he was writing that, or before he finished that work, he was also publishing his own translation of, of Russian fiction, a piece that the tra- Japanese titles Aibiki. He, he was working on this in 1887. And that's known as the, the first work of modern Japanese vernacular literature. That's quite astonishing when we think about it, but the first work of modern Japanese vernacular writing was actually a translation. And that's actually the text that then 20 years later, later writers, the naturalist writers are going back to and saying that was a for, it was a transformative moment for them in their understanding of literature and language. And it was something that then they sought to, to emulate. talking about the Genbun Ichi movement and the kind of unification of written and spoken language. And I mean, this is all, of course, happening at the same moment in the Meiji period when there is the formation of the national language as this kind of homogenizing project to create the nation state. Mm-hmm. What role does literature play and the formation of this literary canon play in the creation of national unity? Oh, that's a very broad question. Well, one way, I mean, you know, what I could say about this is not particularly original, but uh, one of the, the ways in which literature plays a, a role in the formation of the modern nation state, I think, is, is pointed out by um, Benedict Anderson in Imagined Communities. Novels are, are ways in which people imagine themselves to be connected to other, to a citizenry um, of a, a vast 
a mass of people who who they actually will never be able to get to know personally. And I think Ukigomo, you know, it was it was it's representative of that capacity of the novel. The one of the main characters in that text, Ukigomo, the English has been translated in English as um, drifting cloud. And the female character in that text, who is the source of fascination for the male protagonist, her name is Osei. And her name, we find out from reading the author's diaries, he came up with that as a shorthand for Kokse, which is the state of the nation, the kind of tr- national trends. And so he very much had in mind, it's sort of almost an allegory about where the nation is going and trying to create a narrative that portrays that through specific characters. So that's one example. And I think, you know, the, the novel has long been considered to be kind of on a literary end for that for that reason, its ability to tell kind of a story, uh, a narrative um, to be part and parcel of the infrastructure of a modern nation state. Uh, this is something I think that uh, Japanese intellectuals were, were, were aware of in focusing on reform, literary reform focused not only on language, but also it really did focus on a lot of energy on, on developing what they would consider to be fitting into the category of the novel. They came up with the term in Japanese, shosetsu for that, and Tsuboti Shoyo's famous treatise from, I think it was 1885, on the essence of the novel, or Shosetsu, Shinzo, he was really trying to lay out this idea, this kind of historicist notion that the great novels are representative of, of great civilizations and great cultures. So if we want to compare Osei in Ukigomo to Naomi in Chijin Naoai, Osei in Ukigomo is maybe this embodiment of the national trends, the way that the nation is going. But then by the time we get to the Taisho period and Tanizaki Junichiro's writing about Naomi, it's it's more of an ambivalent image, isn't it? Yeah, actually, it's ambivalent in both. I would say um, they have actually a lot in common, these characters, Osei and Naomi. They are both, uh, well, Osei is educated in, in English language, right? She, she takes classes in English. She can speak English. She reads the most kind of hip women's education magazine of the Meiji period, which is Jogakuzashi or women's education. And she spouts this kind of discourse. She, she peppers her, her conversations with people with, with the terms that she picks up from, from these magazines. So her way of speaking and kind of performing modern femininity is, is, what I call Western-esque. And, and Naomi shares that, although, you know, by the 1920s, it's not women's education so much as, as films, right? As imitating and women's magazines more generally, but fashion magazines and actresses and, and the like. And she also has ways of talking that are not considered to be fitting into traditional or acceptable Japanese categories of femininity, which makes her attractive, but also kind of dangerous and potentially unattractive. And I think they, they both share that. And the view, that, at least from the male writer's perspective of these kinds of women, I think has, from the very beginning, been ambivalent. That Almost inevitably, the male protagonist is going to be betrayed by this kind of woman. And that was the, the lineage that I found going all the way back through from 1924, 25, and Chiji Noai all the way back to the 1880s. And tracing going through on the way back to through Ftun, written by Tayama Katai, which was kind of a... Um, one of the key representative works of naturalist fiction, written in 1907. Naomi is one of those novels that I often assign in my classes uh, when we get to the Taisho period and start introducing novels and pop culture. And the students are always commenting how much they enjoy reading it because there's this, Tanizaki has this wonderful way of of, of words and, and this really dark humor. Yeah. And I understand humor is, is something that you're doing more research on now. Can you tell us what you're finding in humor? 
Yeah, so um, humor is a, is a um, topic that I got interested in through working with this other set of issues to do with gender and language. While I was working on that, I, I came across this text by Subo Chishoyo, who, as I mentioned before, he's the figure who uh, is, is, I think, best known for having written this treatise on the essence of the novel and kind of as a theorist and, and a reformist of, of literature. And in the 1890s, he had a couple of articles that, that really struck me as interesting about this question of humor in the novel. And he said, well, you know, these days there's some people are clamoring for a return to comic fiction. And, you know, here's why we don't need that. <laughs> he says, we're in a transitional period right now and, and we have to take things seriously. We've got to learn. This is not the time to be laughing. Who does, you know, who laughs the most, women and children? And it was very clear that laughter was in itself was not something that he valued. In fact, it was something that he, he looked down upon. And then in the process of, of discussing this issue, he talks about this idea of koke, it's a you know, comedy that should be elevated, that there should be kind of an, what the, the goal should be to develop an elevated form of, of comic literature, according to him, that didn't really exist at the time. And he couldn't find examples of it going back, looking back over the history of Japanese literature. Uh, so I thought was really struck by that. And I thought, you know, I wonder if this has something to do with his position as a Japanese intellectual being kind of caught between what we think of as a kind of a Western gaze, the Western view of, of Japan on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the kind of the popular tradition of laughter, the commoner look at the intellectual class, right, that, that we would be more familiar with from looking at trends in the Edo period. There's a tremendous amount of laughter that is stirred up in the Edo period. There's all kinds of parodies. Every different literary genre seems to have um, some interest in stirring up laughter. And he seemed to have a very strong interest in suppressing all of that and saying, no, that's not what we want to continue doing. We want to do something else. So uh, that was how I got interested in, in this question. And I'm in the middle of this is this is work that's ongoing, um, but I'm trying to what I'm trying to figure out really is whether we can think about humor and laughter in the context of modern nation state formation and how that modern nation state formation may change what people think is acceptable to laugh at and and how this affected modern Japanese writers. And so far I've discovered, I guess I should talk about a little bit about what the kinds of things I've discovered is laughter really is striated. There's a hierarchy of laughter and there's a hierarchy of, of concepts and practices. Subochi Shoyo really represents the intellectual elite's approach to laughter and this desire for kind of a more elevated form of literary laughter or comedy, right? Comedy in the sense that, you know, Western philosophers might might talk about. And beside that, there's also a kind of a performance tradition uh, and particularly in those genres of performance that were lesser, considered not to be as representative of national culture. So kabuki would be considered to be representative of national culture in kabuki la. Kabuki reform included, I think, a suppression of certain kinds of laughter, especially body laughter. Whereas if you look at the lesser forms of, of performance, uh, there was a, a much more open approach to laughter. So that's what I, I've, I've found so far. In, in my research, and I'm thinking of Natsume Soseki's Wagahai wa Neko de Ado, translated uh, as I Am a Cat, that was written in 1905 as a marker of how at least the intellectual class got over this idea that laughter can be fundamentally problematic for the development of a kind of a, a more national community because it could be very divisive, um, and how to create a kind of literary humor that can be shared broadly and be participatory in the development of a national community as opposed to 
um, destructive of it. In other words, humor is no laughing matter. <laughs> and in fact, in some cases, a comedy can be deadly, as you've written about. Yes. And, and yeah, I can give you another story of how it's really not a laughing matter by the time we get to. And, and this is also to do with the trajectory of translation and how translation is so important in the Meiji period. You know, in the early days of, of translation of Western literary texts, we have someone like Tabatesime translating a Russian literary text into a, a very new form of, of written Japanese. Uh, no one challenges him on on how he translated the the Russian text, although there are various responses to the style in which that he that he employed. But by the time we get to 1903, that's Meiji 36, you know, like three decades in, uh, I actually came across in the process of looking into humor and in, in Japanese literature a story of two translators that, whose names are really not remembered today at all. Hara Hoitsuan on the one hand and um, Yamagata Iso on the other, who got into this knockdown drag out fight or translation of a really minor text by Mark Twain, in which the first translator, Hara, asked for comments from Yamagata on his translation. Yamagata basically told him, oh, the way that you translated it and your style of translating is really, it's, it's not suited to Mark Twain. Mark Twain has this very sly sense of humor that Japanese people are going to find difficult to understand. And especially this particular text that you worked with, it's, it's probably a lampoon of American journalistic style. And that comment launched this um, public debate in the pages of the Asahi newspaper about Mark Twain and about humor. Who's got a sense of humor? Who doesn't have a sense of humor? By the end of that story, the second translator who was asked for the comment was so angry that he retranslated the whole story and published it as a book along with his commentary. He published the whole debate. And then he also appended several pages of what he considered to be the most egregious mistakes in the first translation. So yeah, it became a very, a very serious matter. You could, you could translate like a, a minor piece and you're going to get called out if, if, if people didn't think you did it well. And if you didn't make people laugh, you could be in trouble. <laughs> been talking about the role of Japanese writers acting as translators, translating these Western texts into Japanese and how that impacts Japanese literature. I wonder if you could talk more about that kind of dual identity of the Japanese writers. I know, for example, Murakami Haruki, this very famous Japanese writer now, also has translated a number of works, including many by F. Scott Fitzgerald into mm -hmm, Japanese. Mm -hmm. So it, is that still continuing today or, or is he kind of a unique example of a Japanese writer who is still translating? Oh, I think that there's still a very strong connection between trans, the active translating, practice of translating and composition in, in uh, the Japanese literary world. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a mark really of Japanese literary modernity that many of the writers that we talk about going back even, you know, and, and including um, contemporary writers uh, will have done some training in a foreign language or specialized in it. So, you know, we think of certain writers as being especially kind of French in style because that's what they did as, as when they were getting their degrees in college. Stabate is a you know, is, is a strong example of that. And I, and I really think this has to do with a, a very different cultural status that translation has in Japan compared to the status it has in a hegemonic language like English, in which we often don't even give an attribution to the translator on the front page, you know, on the cover of a book, right? Sometimes we have to dig around to see, oh, who translated this? And in fact, it's it's 
there's there are not that many translators into English whose names have the level of recognition that writers of fiction have. By contrast, you know, in Japan, you'll regularly see in you know in the covers of of translated books the the name of the translator very prominently displayed, and when it's someone as who's not only a translator but also a famous writer, that sometimes that person's name actually overshadows the the name of the author of the original text. So yeah, this is this is a, a key point, and it's also something that I like to to point out to my students when I teach about translation because. I think a lot of our assumptions about translation are really deeply embedded in the fact that we operate, we think in this hegemonic language of English. And we don't really think of translation as being transformative or having this high status or, or, you know, garnering this level of respect. In fact, in the academy, translation is we, we discourage people from doing translation until after they get tenure because it's not included in the kind of work for, that most institutions would consider to be so-called serious scholarship. So I, I, I do like to, to point out to, to my students that it can have a transformative impact, but sometimes in order to understand that what that is, you have to look outside of English, you have to look outside of English language worldview in order to, to get at that. And Japan, and particularly the Meiji period, but you know the history and the, the tradition that was developed as a result of that is a really great example, I think. I was thinking about the Meiji period and why do I? Why is am I so fascinated by it? And part of it is not just looking at the how infrastructure, the infrastructure of the modern nation state, and all the things that we're so familiar with were developed, but it was really an era of tremendous change. And there were a lot of possibilities. If we look back on it, not simply kind of retrospectively, but if we try to mine it for the possibilities that dev- that never came to fruition, it's particularly rich. And one of the possibilities that we see in the Meiji period that hasn't come to fruition in English as we know it now, you know, at least in contemporary modern day English, is is this attention paid to translation and the respect paid to translation and, and the fact that translation can be practiced and thought of in ways that, that's truly transformative, which to me opens our horizons in terms of how we relate to the foreign. You mentioned the, these two translators in Japanese who are translating a somewhat unknown text by Mark Twain into Japanese. Mm-hmm. If you could name one lesser known Japanese text from the Meiji period or Taisho period that, that you think we should return or, or that we should pay more attention to. What might that be? A lesser known Japanese text from the Meiji period that we should pay more attention to. Oh, it's hard to single out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is half going the opposite direction, but I still think we should pay more attention to Ukigomo actually. <laughs> Even though it's 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 known, it's referenced often, it hasn't really been mined completely. And I'm working I'm working on a retranslation of it now uh, that make it more mineable, I suppose, for the broader variety of issues. But let's see, what else could I think of? Well, maybe the other direction too. What's a text from today that you would like to introduce to the Meiji period? A text from today that I would like to introduce backwards to the Meiji period. Right. Hmm. The one thing about the Meiji period, I think, from the female perspective, right, is like we wish that the, there's cert, there were certain trends of there were certain writers who were beginning to understand, had get a different view, a more open view of um, gender, and that was really foreclosed, which is too bad, right? It's, so I can't think of <laughs> Fran Lebowitz. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that that would have gone over so well. I can't. Yeah, that's a really tough one. Going backwards, I've never thought about that. 
The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Centre for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.